Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Uh, in this episode, it'll actually just be Tom Velasco and I. Trevor could not make it because he is moving to Nebraska. So in this episode, Tom and I will tackle books 3 and 4 from the Confessions. Um, I appreciate all the downloads. Our first new download that we started this summer has gotten close to 1,000 listeners, which is awesome. Uh, 1,000 downloads, I should say. But I had to increase the server space that we have on Podomatic.com, and uh, that's starting to cost us a little bit, just about $200 a year. So anything that you all would be willing to contribute, I'm going to post a link to our Patreon account. And our first donator was Aaron Burke, and he gave us uh, $5 a month. So if we even just had five people do that, uh, we could get close to covering our costs for uploading the podcast on Podomatic.com. But anything that could anything could help, even if it's just a dollar a month, um, you can set that up through Patreon, and it, Patreon will send it to me, and that would be really great if you would be uh, any of you all would be willing to help out with the costs of uploading and getting this podcast to you. We really enjoy it. We're getting lots of listeners, lots of engagement. We got 430 likes on uh, Facebook. And, and like I said, close to a thousand downloads on our on at least one our most popular so far episode. Um, so we really appreciate all your listening. Um, and if you can't contribute, um, we just appreciate you listening. If you can't contribute and you wouldn't mind giving us a rating on iTunes, that would also really help us um, because then we get more people involved in the show. So rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, um, and I'll put a patriotic. Uh, link up with this episode if you wouldn't mind helping us out, uh, contributing just a little bit uh, so that we can record this podcast. So in books three and four, we're going to dig deeper into the life and thought of St. Augustine. Uh, next week, Trevor will be back with us, and we will uh, actually be continuing in three and four and add a little bit from five. Uh, Tom and I uh, don't get very far because this is such a rich text. So we appreciate all you listening. Um, and we will be back next week with books, uh, with book five, and Trevor will be with us. Thanks for listening. <laughs> All right, so uh, here we are in book three of Augustine's Confessions, um, and I thought I would just start off um, this conversation um, with the very beginning of book three. So Augustine has finished um, his like. So we think that we think there's roughly. Um, either three or four different schools, depending on how you count them, in the ancient um, liberal classic education uh, that Augustine would have received. He probably first went to um, some kind of person where he learned really basic letters. Then he went to the what is called the grammarian or the grammaticus. Um, and here he's going to uh, the school of rhetoric. Um, and the fourth school would be when he would study philosophy or um, sort of finalize his study of the law. Um, so we kind of think that by this late, there was sort of like, that was like um, a graduate school maybe or something um, where you'd really finalize and professionalize. Um, but here Augustine's going to the school of rhetoric, which is either sort of late high school or early college. But I like to think of it as like going to college because he goes away to Carthage um, and he says some, some really interesting things about what it was like. So he's from Maduros, a little small provincial town, or uh, no, he's from Thagast, excuse me. Um, but his first education was in Medalrus. Uh, and then he goes to Carthage, far away from his family. Um, and he says, 
uh, at the very beginning of book three, I came to Carthage and all around me a melting pot of illicit, of illicit passions was seething. I was not yet in love, but I was in love with the idea of love. And because of the neediness I felt deep down, I hated the thought of not being needy enough. I was looking for something to love, loving to love, and I hated the safety of a course free from pitfalls. Um, I mean, we could just keep going. Um, oh, here he mentions God. Within myself, I was hungry from the lack of inner food. You yourself, my God. But that hunger did not make me want to feast. Rather, I had no desire at all for the incorruptible food. Um, and um, so uh, what we get in this description to me, uh, well, I, I guess I could turn it to Tom, but I mean, one of the things that, you know, just uh, – there's just there, this is I feel like this is both something that you could read about the ancient world and also something you could hear someone say today, um, both the pa- part about the passions and the in lo- but but even being in love with love. How many of us have not used that very line? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, I, I feel like everything in this book just reminds me of the fact that things have not changed really fundamentally. I mean, you know, it's as is repeated over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. I should, uh, we should, of course, make sure to point out for our listeners that we don't have Trevor with us this week. He was going to join us, but he is sick and actually texted us just this morning. So um, he will be back next time, uh, Lord willing. So don't worry, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple of thoughts on that actually uh, thinking of him and his talking about his illicit desires being, I mean, he's, he, you know, the thing about Augustine, which kind of goes back to even his, what we talked about last week, his talk about the stealing the, the pear is when you read it, you can't help but feel like he's just being a little too hard on himself. I mean, the reality is, is I do not get the picture of him being this wildly profligate 18 year old who's going around, you know, sowing his wild oats, joining orgies. I mean, doing all these things that people tend to think of as profligacy in the ancient Roman empire. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, he only references one woman and it's a woman that he doesn't marry but he essentially takes as a concubine and is in a monogamous relationship with for, I mean, what, 15 years or something like that? Yeah, um, I don't remember the, yeah it's a long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and I know they, they join up, I think, in book three, don't they? I mean, I think it's book three where, they, where he says they, they come together. So that must put him at about 1920, somewhere around there. Yep. Um, and again, I'm not trying to say that that's okay by any stretch of imagination. I'm just saying that when we think of... Uh, is, you know, concupiscence and profligacy and people going around and, and being crazy teenagers, monogamy is just not the first thing that comes to mind, right? Uh, and, of course, I think, you know, your typical middle-class uh, American would have been very proud of having Augustine as their son, this young man who's obviously very gifted, very well-educated, who is pursuing rhetoric, and, and that's because he's pursuing a career in law, right? right? So we're talking about a guy who's at law school, who's at law school and is monogamous, but he is deeply regretful for his sin or what he takes to be his sins. And is, as always, I mean, throughout this book, he's telling his story as if it is just a confession, 
Uh, in fact, in one of the passages, Chad, you might need to help me out here. In one of the passages, he starts kind of going down a little bit of a rabbit trail. And he says, uh-huh. but this book is about confessing, not about that, whatever that was. I don't recall. Uh-huh. You remember what I'm talking about? Uh, not especially, but. Um, well, yeah. I have it. I have it underlined somewhere, but I'm not going to. Yeah. I don't want to cause a big break in terms of, uh, you know, while I'm looking it up. But yeah, in any case, that's what he says. He's he says uh, that this book is ultimately about me confessing, not about anything else. Uh, so he does look at this work as a work of uh, essentially confessing, confessing his sins. That's right. Uh, that that's ultimately what he's doing, um, which is kind of funny because, like I said, I, I think that your typical middle class American and probably middle class Roman in his day would have looked at this and said, hey, he's a pretty good guy, actually. Yeah. Well, this reminds me that, um, so there's a new uh, translation of the confessions that just came out. um, And this woman claims to have no theological training, that she's just a classicist, and she's just translating the words, um, which already makes me a little suspicious. But... um, To translate language without cultural context, including religious background. So she says, um, she says, well, it's called a confession because, in, as Augustine would have known, confession has to do with witness. And it's like someone being called a witness. It's not primarily what we think about confessions. And I was like, okay, maybe. Let's talk about the layers of the word confession. And certainly there is that ancient, there, you know. I mean, I wasn't actually even aware of that context. I was usually fateor uh, without the um, prefix is the word that's used in those cases. But even if it's confateor, um, that's clearly not what he's doing in the simple sense. Unless unless you want to say, well, or at least you should color it theologically. He's bearing witness to his own sins. Yes. Which we would, I mean, which is just confession anyway. Yeah. like, I don't know that it's a meaningful and helpful distinction in the sense that it really doesn't give us any, I mean, maybe it makes it a little bit more um, juridical, um, a little bit closer to the law. Uh, but still, it's clearly the ancient use of confession. And I do this kind of work all the time. I love Latin. I love the ancient context uh, that, or the classical context. I love Cicero. But, it, but with Augustine, you can never just do the classical context. He is uh, replete with references to scripture. Uh, so he knows that the Psalms say confess and they mean both praise and confess. And that's mm-hmm. what confessions mean. And so I was reading this introduction and this brand new translation and she gets, she does a lot. That's really good. It's like, I mean, mostly I would recommend it, but like that one thing alone, I was like, no, he wants to say this is, he is reading this in, in view of the Psalms, which say confession is a recognition that you are a sinner by confessing how great God is. Yep. And um, I found that, I found that passage that I was referencing. It's from book four. So we're jumping, so I'm just jumping slightly ahead. He's going to reference the death of a friend and his grief in that. Uh-huh. And after talking about the grief, kind of actually really starting to almost cascade in his grief, right? He stops. He yeah. kind of puts a, a hiccup and he says, why do I speak of these matters? Now is the time not to be putting questions and that he, he asks a number of theological questions in regard to his grief, but rather to be making confession to you. Right. So mm-hmm. he, he seems to, he clearly is sitting here saying, look, 
This time is not a time where I'm trying to figure things out. I'm not trying to play philosopher here. I'm trying to make a confession of my sin. Um, and frankly, I don't know. It seems to me that when I read stuff like this, or actually I could, I could liken this, and Catholic listeners, I don't know, they might be bothered by me likening St. Augustine to Martin Luther, but it makes me think, of course, of Luther's reputation prior to the Protestant Reformation, right? Mm. That he was supposedly a guy who was morbidly obsessed with his own sins and would spend hours confessing to his abbot, and his abbot would say things like, Martin, go away and come back when you have something worth confessing, right? (laughs) That's right. Um, And it seems to me that all of this really ties into, you know, that injunction throughout the Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Mm. that you start with a deep abiding awareness of your own failings, of just how far you fall from the standard of God and of perfection and of kind of what God's goal is for you, and that you deeply, you weep over that, right? Mm. I think that that's a good, I've, I've, I think about what I talked about last episode and even how I started today talking about um, St. Augustine's morbidity, I think, at his own failings and how I feel like he might, from most people's perspective, be overblowing it a little bit. But I don't think that that's the case. I mean, I certainly don't think that August that this uh, hurt Augustine, right? I think you could look at this as being something that ultimately served him well in 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 driving him towards his faithfulness and loyalty to God and his understanding of God. And I certainly think it did with Luther as well. Mm. Um, and I, I definitely can say that there were periods of time in my life where I've had, I think, a similar morbidity where I basically think about things, mistakes I've made, and I, I dwell on them maybe even overly long. And I'm deeply repentant and, and deeply concerned to confess. So I don't know. I think it's a part of the human experience. I think I think we can certainly over uh, overdo it, and we can obsess to a point where it's damaging. But I think that it is a, a part of the Christian life to some degree. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. I mean, in terms like, and I would also put it like you know, um, there is this great contrast in worlds. Like when we're trying to access the ancient world, you know, we have to. We always try to be aware of our own uh, limitations by where we sit in time. And um, I, I listen, or I've been, you know, listening a lot to another theologian and reading a lot of another theologian about Hauerwas, uh, called Stanley Hauerwas. And Hauerwas, he he reminds us that um, you know the one of the things that um, modern Americans uh, fear the most is death. Um, and so um, we, what do we pray for? We pray for a speedy death where we don't know what's happening so we can pretend like we never actually died. Um, but we want it, but what the, um, there in the great litany, um, in the book of common prayer, um, there's a prayer that says, um, spare me a speedy death. Um, and so this is a medieval prayer. It's probably from, uh, if, I mean, if it's a tra- uh, Cramer's translation, it's 16th century. Um, but why would you be afraid to have a speedy death? Because you're afraid of God. Um, and because you fear God more than you fear death. Um, mm-hmm. And so you would want to be prepared to be sure that you knew where you were going after mm-hmm. it was over. Um, and so I think in this, so I think that might also help us a little bit as a window into Augustine. What does he fear more um, than anything? 
It is, in, in a sense, it is God. Now, he turns that into a sweet lovingness, right? So, I mean, as, as ever, we have to remember that God is loving and that God does forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you, you know, fear is one of those very hard words for us in the 21st century. Um, and we never want to talk about fearing God. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, so in order to counter, you know, the pendulum a little bit, I'll just say that, yes, it does seem like he's a little harsh, but you have to remember, um, that he fears and honors and loves and considers God the most real thing. Yeah. Um, whereas for us, I think the most real thing for modern Americans is death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we, you're right about that. Just kind of playing off what you just said there about fear being this bad thing, you know, today. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I think, I think fears can be inappropriately placed. And I think that fears, our fears can be uh, inappropriately, uh, what sort of severe, like in the sense that we obsess, right. And it leads to severe anxiety and, and things of that nature. And I think those things are not good um, in a real sense. At the same time, like, I, I don't know why we always have to have this horrid, association with fear. I was with a friend of mine the other day and uh, I revealed to her that I watch horror movies um, to a certain degree, not all, but I do. And it's not the only kind of movie I watch, but I do enjoy them from time to time. And she referenced some sermon that she heard where the pastor said that, um, that the love of God drives out all fear. And so why would we ever, seek after fear like why would that be something that we would want to which you know i thought about it for a second my response was look fear is a natural thing that was put in us and there are certain kinds of fears that are totally appropriate if there's a guy who's coming to kill me uh and he has a gun or a knife or something it's appropriate that i should have fear fear helps me to run right Mm -hmm. helps me to get out of that situation this is a natural thing Mm -hmm. that god put into us for the for the sake of our survival um, having, you know, I mean, that being the case, um, I also think that you can have these different kinds of fears that are put into us that are good, uh, such as a fear that my parents are going to find out if I'm doing something bad, right? right? If I do something wrong, I know that my parents are going to discipline me. Uh, you know, I remember the, I remember my stepfather, ironically, as he was taking a drag off of a joint, turning to me and telling me, if I ever catch you doing this, son, I will kill you. Uh, and I remember when my eighth grade self had an opportunity to smoke a joint, <laughs> I could hear those words reverberating in my ears. If I ever catch you doing this, son, I'm going to kill you. Now, I don't think that that's an appropriate way to talk to a, to a 14-year-old boy or a thir- I guess a 12 or 13-year-old boy. But let me just say this. It put the fear of the man in me and it led to me not smoking. Right. Now, the truth is, is he was actually a loving stepfather. And I don't I didn't live like this anxious life about coming home and fearing that he was going to beat me or something like that. Like I didn't have this fear of the man that was inappropriate. I instead had this fear of disappointing him, of getting caught, of him getting angry with me. And I think that that was a good thing. And, And so all that to say that, yes, perfect love does cast out all fear, as the scripture tells us. Um, but at the same time, I think what it's talking about there is that state of mind that you get yourself in when you think that calamity or something bad might befall because 
you're not trusting God, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. of Matthew 6, where Jesus says, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? Uh, the point being, first and foremost, we need to trust the Lord. So fearing God means, you know, wanting to do well because we don't want to, to, to disappoint him or we don't want to violate his law or we don't want, you know, nothing like that. But it also means trusting mm-hmm. uh, that he is going to be in control when other fears arise. So I don't know, just a little bit of a tangent there. Sorry about that. No, it's it was it, okay. So uh, it was sort of interesting, and I I didn't mean to. Uh, I don't know if I looked distracted, but I was doing some research. So my first thought, my first thought always when I hear these things is, what is the language? What are the words being used? So in English, we pretty much just use fear. Um, and, and there's that's pre- I, I don't know. I, like synonyms might be horrified, um, terrified, terrified. Um, so Anxious. in last. Yeah, so in Latin, there are multiple words for fear, um, which I think is only appropriate given the fact that uh, they're primarily a, a martial culture, and it's a very martial language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was – so you had the, the certain kind of fear that you had of your general, um, which was a different kind of fear um, than you might have of a, of a dog chasing you down from behind, although – even as I say that, probably you feared your general, at least in part, because you knew that he could kill you. That's where the word decimate comes from. We yeah. kill one out of every ten um, so that they fear the general more than they fear the opposing soldiers and whatnot. So these do all overlap, um, which is actually the point that I was, I was actually coming to. I was hoping that there would be a nice, uh, oh, well, the fear of Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It might be uh, vereor, which is this like more – usually it's like more honorable fear. Um, like we honor that person. So we fear them, but in, in the Vulgate, um, anyway, which is what Augustine, well, Augustine would have been reading the Vulgate, but Augustine would have been reading the Latin, the previous Latin version. So I'll say that for the academics out there, but nevertheless, he's reading a Latin Bible. Uh, and, uh, you know, at least the most commonly available Latin Bible, has the same word Timor, uh, Timeo for both versions, uh, uh-huh. both in Proverbs and both in first John. Um, but it, it always reminds me of the way that pastors make a really, uh, uh, I think an overly firm distinction between, um, the different types of love and John, uh, night, uh, John 19, is it uh, where Jesus reinstates Peter, uh, or John 21. I can't remember. It's at the mm-hmm. end of the gospel of John. Um, and you know, there's a different kind of thing between phileo and agape. And I, I mean, John's probably is playing on that. Um, mm-hmm. but it's not as hard and fast all the time. Every time you see phileo and agape, it always has this meaning that John yes. imposes on it. Um, and, and, uh, but uh, I was hoping there was a difference in the words for fear. Cause I know there are a lot of them in Latin. Um, but, uh, but no, there's not, it's the same word. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if you think about it, right, Matthew, 1028, Jesus puts a pretty stark kind of take on this fear of the Lord. It's one that people don't reference a lot, but he says, do not fear him who kills the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, right? So here, Jesus essentially, I mean, I like your analogy there about fearing the general rather than the enemy. I mean, to be honest, most armies throughout history have given to their commanding officers the ability to shoot underlings on site, right? right? And the reason is because when the time comes and you have to go and fight, it's very likely that you're going to fear the person who has a weapon aimed against you more than your commanding officer if your commanding officer cannot, in turn, shoot you 
as well, right? Mm -hmm. So even in World War One, I, I mean, when generals are calling for the men in the trenches to go up over the, uh, you know, over the uh, outside of the trench into no man's land, I mean, that would have been a horrible, fearful thing because everybody died, right? I mean, everybody who went through was dying. So you were like, I might as well just play my odds and come back here. But officers would stand behind them and shoot them. If they tried to not go over the top or if they turned around and tried to flee, they would have officers right behind them shooting them. And so you had this thing of we have to fear our officers just as much as we have to fear our enemy. And here Jesus is kind of pointing this out to say, look, we're afraid of people, right? Now, again, I, even though the word is the same, even though the word means fear, and like you said, it, it doesn't, I'm not familiar with that second Latin term. What was it again that you said? The fereor. Fereor? Yeah. Uh, that kind of usually has with it, well, like when you say it carries with it the idea of honor, mm -hmm. more like what context might it have been commonly used in? Uh, well, right now, all I'm thinking is like, um, I mean, it's it's a little, to me, it's a little less, um, it's not like, well, there's also perteritus and exhorere, um, oh. there's like, like where we get horror and terrified, mm -hmm. uh, but vereor is a little bit like, um, um, I show special deference to, um, yeah. that's a little bit more like, um, I'm gonna... I'm going to sort of stand down um, yeah. because I'm not exactly sure what's about to happen. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go into this confident. Like I'm, I'm concerned that um, it, it would be a, a phrase. Um, I'm, I'm a little worried that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's like, cause I stand in front of something that, that I honor more. So I'm going to stand down. Um, yeah. That's, you know, yeah, well, that, you know, that makes sense. I mean, in the, because in this context, he's essentially saying, look, some of you disciples are literally going to face death for the sake of the gospel, right? I mean, you're, you're actually going to be standing before kings, princes, governors, you, rabbis, you name it, people who are going to be wanting to hand you up to death, right, to magistrates to die. And if you're afraid of dying physically, then you are going to recant this life. Like you are going to turn. So he's saying, don't fear what they can do because the worst they can do is physically kill you. Instead, fear the one who can not only, who not only has power over that side of things, but also has power over the life to come. Um, because he's, you know, he's of course implying there's more judgment after, uh, after this life and the life to come. So um, yeah. Uh, but I would add, though, that, of course, that fear, even in the first, like in the in the former instance, that is fear of man, it doesn't need to be a fear of death in particular. Right. I think probably in most of our instances, we're not the disciples who are literally standing before magistrates throughout human history or church history. We are instead people who are fearing that our boss might fire us or mm. fearing that my friend may not like me so much anymore. Or maybe I won't get invited to the dinner parties because I'm too whatever, you know, too Christian or, you know, some, those are the things we fear. Um, so I don't think it needs to be the kind of thing, fear in that sense that is like just about terrifying you. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, all that to say, I, I don't think it needs to mean, however, of course, that, that we need to live in this like shaking. Uh, I don't, I, let me put it this way. I think that we do not need to live our lives thinking of God as this terrorizing overlord who's ready to strike us down with a lightning bolt. I think that it is more akin to a father who loves us, who we should rightly be afraid of um, because he wants what's best for us. And I think Augustine um, fits this. There's a passage in yesterday's reading. I'm going to take a second to 
to find it. This is what happens when you when a, a passage jumps to mind. But he actually says that God's punishment to us is it comes about because or through kind of our own self destruction. Um, in essence, sin like God God doesn't sit there and throw the lightning bolt at us because he hates us. But instead, our sin destroys us. And the, that, here it is. It's, a, it's, in a, it's in section 16 of, cha- of book three, so, or chapter 16 of book three. And this is halfway through um, the second paragraph where he says, your punishment is that which human beings do to their own injury, because even when they are sinning against you, their wicked actions are against their own souls. Iniquity, he quotes the Psalms here, iniquity lies to itself when men either corrupt or pervert their own nature, which you made and ordered. So he's essentially saying, look, God created us to be a certain way. And when we pervert that, and that's a lot, that's very much his language, right? There's a, there's a, there's an order. There is a, an end to which we were created. And if we go to the right or to the left of that end, if we pervert it, if we shift it, then what happens is we destroy ourselves and that that itself is God's actual judgment. So it's not even that he's saying God is standing up there with a lightning bolt ready to pounce on us. The fear of God is actually the fear of what's going to happen because this is the is the ordered nature of the world that was created. Right. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, I think it, I mean, it's it's so beautiful. I mean, you know, I, I I'm, I'm going to sound uh, fawning because I do every time I read Augustine. Um, I'm just amazed. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's perfect, right? It's like, okay, you have that is, you know, it's, 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 it's set out so clearly, like, you know, God has established an end. And it's not only it's we who punish ourselves because we turn from that proper end. Um, and one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, in this, in book three and book four, he turns to the Manichees. And so as he's going along, um, we, we will, I want to get to the Hortensius and a few other things, but he turns to the Manichees and the Manichees are materialists, right? So that's his big, the big thing, big problem he sort of has ultimately with the, with them is they they only concern themselves with the body. Mm-hmm. And Augustine is a young man. Um, Augustine is a, at least, you know, he's, uh, he's got a, a concubine. There may have been some other, he at least loved sex with his concubine and he was very, he seemed, everything seemed okay on the outside. Um, he was doing well in school. He had a, he had a good looking woman. He was going to the shows. He had friends. He was living it up. Um, but what he tells you is that, um, on the, you know, on it, in his soul, it was totally destroyed. And the very, uh, very first page of book three, so my soul was in a poor state of health and covered it in sores. It lay prostrate out of doors in a pitiable state, itching to be scratched through the sensual touch of physical things. So we have a couple things going on here. This is, um, this is just one one of book three was what I was reading. Um, you have a couple things going on here. One, he knows that what goes on inside drives what happens outside, whereas other people tend to think the other way around. The Manichees tend to think the other way around. Either what happens on the outside is more important than what happens on the inside, or what happens on the inside doesn't matter at all. Um, But this is not a strict dualism, as if the two are separate, because he knows he has these pleasures inside. He has to fulfill them in a certain way, so he goes and has as much sex as he can, um, because he needed that. 
Um, but he thought that that was where his fulfillment was going to be. Simply put, it was just going uh, as uh, that was his end. His only end was that uh, scratching what was going on inside, which was destroyed. So he's but he's in a pitiable, terrible state inside. But he says basically no one could see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Manichees, he goes to the Manichees uh, because they also sort of have the same idea. It's all about the outside. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's just interesting, but, but what Augustine has to do is he has to learn, um, that he continued to continue and continued to seek, um, the wrong ends. Uh, and so he continued to seek his satisfaction in the sensual pleasures. Um, and because he didn't know what was really going on in his heart and in his soul. And that's why he begins the whole book with our heart is restless until it rests in you. And then what what I think is mistaken about Augustine is they think that he ultimately then says everything is the soul. Um, but what he really says is sexual pleasure in marriage can only happen if you know where you're truly satisfied. And then all the rest comes in place. Augustine is oddly enough one of the, fa- the church fathers who's least condemning um, of sex and marriage. Um, he just says he thinks it's a different occupation for different people in the church. Um, he doesn't say everyone should be or and he's not against people who just, you know, who do decide to. He just thinks that you can only know the proper love between a man and a woman once you recognize that your ultimate fulfillment and longing is in God and all the other things fall into place. So, he, you know, some people get, read him wrong and they think that he just denies the body. He wants yeah. to get rid of the body. He's not a Platonist. He's not a Gnostic. He just thinks that you, but, 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 but what he knows why he focuses on it is because I think he knows it's not our natural proclivity. Most of yeah. us do just think we are bodies seeking to fulfill our pleasures. I mean, if you, you know, again, if you didn't think that this was prescient, um, just talk to anyone. The most important thing that, that people want to talk about nowadays is their body and fulfilling their body. Um, yeah. and, and, and Augustine says, you know, this is an unending, qu- or uh, let me show you why this is an unending quest. Yeah. Um, well, and in, to, yeah. in today's culture, in today's culture, I mean, that is the assumption of everybody. I mean, literally. We now believe as as a whole, I mean, I, I couldn't give you, I mean, obviously we don't know percentages and there are a lot of people who are religious. And so, of course, your religion will have a bearing on what you actually believe about this. So I'm sure that I'm probably overstating it a bit. But the accepted scientific view is that we are, in fact, our bodies, right? Yeah. I mean, that 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 a, just an accurate description of our soul is essentially a description of our brain our brain functions and our brain states, right? The idea is, is that, that there is no soul, not in the sense that people would have believed traditionally and not in the sense that people tend to believe in religion today, right? So I'm sure that the percentages of people who believe in a soul are actually really high and probably higher than people who believe there isn't a soul. But the accepted academic view is that there is no soul that we are our brains and the contents of our brains and the functions of our brains, uh, which is a physical material thing. Um, and even if you might have a high percentage of people today who believe in a soul, those people nonetheless are incredibly influenced by uh, this scientific belief or the scientific view, right? I mean, uh, uh, so, so uh, you know, so much so that, you know, if you think back to the 16th century and Rene Descartes, right? Rene Descartes put forward a thought experiment 
in which he said, what if my soul is currently being held captive by a demon that is causing it to experience and feel things that are not real? And modern philosophers don't like using that language. They'll sit there and say, rather, it's a scientist with a brain, with our brain in a vat and is causing through various electronic impulses to cause our brain to experience things that are not there. We think of switching as transferring from the brain to the brain. Like, like if I were to think of body switching, I would tend to think of it as somebody opening up my head, removing my brain and putting it in another body. I think of the horror movie, Get Out, right? The movie Get Out, I don't know if you've seen it. No, I haven't. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a good movie. I mean, it was a, a, it was a very good movie. And also, I think, culturally, uh, culturally impactful. It was a Jordan Peele's movie last year, and it really dealt with race relation issues. Mm. But what you have is you have a situation where white people are essentially transporting their minds into black people's bodies, Mm. And what they're doing is, but, but, but if that, now that film was made in the 16th century, that would involve magic and it would involve the transferring of souls. Now it's a physician who cuts open a head and he removes brains and he changes where the brain is because we can't help but think of ourselves as our brains. brains. Yeah. Well, so this is perfect, right? I mean, it's exactly right. And here's the other thing. I mean, so what, one thing that I love about Augustine, uh, is, you know, uh, he's, he's intellectual, he's rational. Like, I mean, these are arguments, but he's also very aware of us as desiring creatures. And Mm -hmm. Augustine is not against desire, right? I mean, so Augustine uses, uh, you know, two different words for desire. There's uh, cupiditas and even caritas, properly speaking, has a desire, has a love. Um, he thinks of amor and cupiditas as going together um, and, and con- con- concupiscentia um, and these other words as these sort of bad versions of desire. But caritas, properly understood, has a desire, um, and it's a desire for God. Um, and it's a des- and it's, so it's still a desiring thing. Um, you know, and so he's not a pure rationalist. And so what he would – I mean, I think what Augustine would say – and. Uh, you know, some of us may say we believe in a soul, but we live um, as if it's not the case. Um, and so that is we don't attend to the things that attend to our inner realities, which Augustine would say are more real. Um, and now this is going to get this gets uh, this gets a little fraught and a little difficult. But I used to get this um, comment all the time about teaching at a Christian school or going to a Christian school. Um, well, that's not the, quote, real world. Um as if, um, you know, the and, and, and then when you ask them, well, what's the real world? Uh, this happened the other day. I was just talking about how I used to paint and used to work at a, uh, an oil change place when I was in high school. And a friend of mine said, well, you got to experience the real world. Why should that be any more real? Yeah. Uh, why should and, – and, you know, and if you ask them, well, it's because they swear and they cuss and they're poor or they're – uh, rich or they're they're working or they're um, you know they talk about those things those are real things what you do with your mind is not a real thing um, when you are school when you are studying when you are reading when you are being logical rational that's not real or to, for Augustine honestly when this stuff happens in the church where it should um, you know or at least the, when the school is in service to the church and to God. Um, you know, it'll combine all, it should combine all of this stuff. Um, but we take the real thing to be whatever we do when we work, because that's with our bodies and that's what gives us money. Um, and that's what gives us bread. 
Um, and the Christian life, if it is anything, it is training us uh, to what is real. Um, and the world, you know, our, all of our, ha- you know, this is James K.A. Smith. I'll put a link up to him too. Um, Jake, James K.A. Smith. And I love James K.A. Smith. And I don't think that he would disagree with this, but James K.A. Smith at his best is just an Augustinian. <laughs> He's just a really good expositor of Augustine. And he says that all of our lives are trained in liturgies to show us um, what, what the world thinks is real and what church is. When we go to church, um, it is helping us learn uh, a different reality, the true reality. Um, and that's, you know, so this is, you know, Augustine can be hard to read it sometimes um, because, you know, he says all these things about this horrible, pitiable state of his soul. Um, and it's like, well, that's not real. Um, is he healthy? Is he living? Um, you know, that's the real sickness. Um, and that's why, you know, this is, uh, this is why doctors are more important uh, in our world than, 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 than pastors. Um, and the moral formation of the doctors is more real than, uh, than pastors. Um, you know, most of us would never uh, go to a doctor who hadn't had anatomy. But, you know, at my seminary, at Princeton Seminary, you could opt out of systematics. You could opt out of theology um, and you could opt out of Christology. Like, you, you know, oh, oh yeah, you can, I'm, I'm going to serve you as your pastor, but I haven't thought through what it means for God to become a man. Um, <laughs> but I can help you because I can provide you a little bit of pastoral care. Um, God forbid someone tried to do that as a doctor. Um, you know, no, 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 I'm, I'm not doing I'm not doing anatomy. Uh, <laughs> that is the best analogy ever and it's yeah i mean the reality is is what you just described i mean it's tragic because it seems to me that increasingly you have churches where your pastoral staff have not had theological training regardless of where they end up on the spectrum of of theological inclination right like you just described graduating from princeton seminary yeah, it's a very liberal seminary. Like, tends to be liberal, right? It tend, yeah. Not always, but tends yeah. to be liberal. So what you have there is you have graduates coming out who want to provide pastoral care, who want to, um, uh, who, who I think envision themselves, who have pastor's hearts, I'm sure, right? No doubt. Mm-hmm. But who don't see the connection with actually studying Christian theology. But on the flip side, right, on the extreme conservative side, you have a lot of churches which have rejected um, rationalism, I guess, uh, and 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 education are suspect of it, are suspect of education. And so consequently, on the conservative side of things, you have uneducated pastors, which I don't want to imply that I'm completely against that entirely. I mean, I know people can always say, hey, look, the um, you know early church had lots of people in pastoral positions who didn't have seminary training or whatever. I, I grant that. But having said that, I mean, if you think of the apostles, who themselves were, in a sense, uneducated, right? Fishermen, I mean, people will always quote that. But they did spend three years with Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think this idea that we don't need to have some kind of training for pastoral ministry is just wrong. I mean, because you are, I mean, I know, I mean, I work at a church that ends, that is on this end of the spectrum. I, I don't work there, I'm sorry. I'm on the elder board of a church. I used to work there. But uh, on the elder board of a church that ends up on this side of the spectrum. And I've seen far too many instances of people who I think well-meaning, and I think the church was well-intended as well, but who basically for various and all sorts of different kinds of reasons 
came to be trusted by church leadership and were thrust into positions uh, where they would counsel people and things of that nature, where, where literally, which I mean, I think we're just not, we don't take seriously enough, like people's lives could be in the balance there. And yet people are walking in there with no biblical training, no theological training, right? There needs to be biblical and theological training uh, from trusted sources before we can go into, I think, a true pastoral ministry, I mean, in that sense. Well, I mean, I'll I'll just point out um, that, uh, yeah, Augustine certainly did not, there was no school of theology, um, there, you know, he read philosophers. He actually considered reading uh, philosophers part of his training. He thought it was important that he did that. Um, but when he um, <laughs> he avoided as as long as he could ever being uh, a priest, um, he thought he, what he wanted to do was live in a monastery and read and pray. Um, and he he uh, avoided going to Hippo because he knew that Hippo needed a pastor. Um, and so, uh, but he he has to go through Hippo for some reason, and the pastor, it's it's like the way that he tells the story um, in one of his letters is it's a, as if, um, uh, is it, uh, oh, I can't, oh, I can't, I'm, I'm a, I can't remember, it starts with a V, um, the guy who um, sort of, he's like, he snatches him, it's like he grabs him, he's like, Augustine, and thrusts him into the pulpit, but Augustine says, okay, fine, I'll do it, but you have to give me at least a year to read and consider the scriptures. Um, And so there, you know, there wasn't a seminary. Um, He spent a lot of time listening to Ambrose. He spent a lot of time thinking with his, uh, his mom actually is at the center of the Cascaiacum dialogue um, and his son. Uh, But, but even all of the outside of all that, he says, okay, I'll become a pastor. I'm not, it's not my choice. It's God's choice, but I have to read the scriptures for a year. Yeah. Um, And yeah. And then he does. And he goes on, you know, I will say to be one of, uh, you know, one of the greatest, most influential theologians that the church has known. Uh, dare we say outside of scriptural, like Paul. Yeah. The most influential, most important theologian the church has ever, ever known. Yeah. I mean, uh, Bernard, McGinn, Bernard McGinn says if all philosophy is a footnote to Plato, all theology is a footnote to Augustine. Yeah, yeah. Hey, really quickly, just as a, a point, just to make sure our audience is clear, could we chat for a second about Manichaeism, what it is? Just because it came up a bunch of times, and, and for our audience, I mean, Manichaeism, at this stage in his life, Augustine is going to become a hearer of Manichaeism, right? Um, uh, not an initiate, mm-hmm. or not an initiated member of the Manichae movement, but a hearer, which means... Uh, it means that he would have been involved in their worship services and that he was an adherent to their worldview, so to speak. Um, so I don't know. I'll throw out a couple things, Chad, I guess. And yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, roughly a hearer is a catechumen, um, yeah. although that may or may not be helpful either. But yeah. in the Christian church, if you're a catechumen before you were baptized, usually two to three years, um, you would go through a kind of process of learning what it meant to be a Christian um, and uh, then you could receive communion. You could listen to the sermons, but you couldn't receive communion. Um, Augustine actually turns out he thinks that this is too long of a process, and Augustine is probably the turning point, but uh, of of childhood baptism. But aside from all that, go ahead, uh, Manichaeism. Yeah. So uh, I mean, all I was going to say just for our audience is Manichaeism was essentially a third, fourth century Christian cult, I, and I, I think it's fair for me to use that word because. 
they were a closed group and they did have secret rites of initiation that they didn't want everybody to know about. And they did define themselves as being in opposition to Orthodox Catholic Christianity. They thought Orthodox Catholic Christianity was a, they believed a bastardization of Jesus's teachings. And remember, um, Catholic means universal here. This has nothing to do, well, not nothing to do, but it's not quite the same as what we call Roman Catholicism either. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the mainline church, the, the kind of the, the imperially endorsed church, which most Christians belong to, um, it was founded by a man named Manny, um, who styled himself a prophet and who I believe implied that he was a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Is that the right? Parousia, yeah. The parousia had arrived is what the, the parousia comes up a lot for man. Yeah. And the par- parousia is the return, right? Yeah. Of Jesus. Yeah. So, so that he was in a sense like the manifestation of Jesus or the spirit in the world. And he basically just taught a Gnostic doctrine. We've, we've talked about Gnosticism a lot, so I don't want to rehash that. I mean, it is and it, it is and it isn't. One of the well, it is and it isn't, right? Because he also says that he he says that the Manichees are materialists. Um, that that material is more important than the spiritual. Uh, I mean, if really parsing this out gets tricky because they are kind of Gnostics, but most people think about Gnostics as uh, that Christ only seemed the Docetic Gnostics. Yeah. Um, you know, Christ only seemed to be physical. Um, and Manny uh, looks at everything in the world as the, the most important things are the physical things. He calls – so, I, I mean, parsing this gets hairy, um, but I just wanted to point that out. They are still slightly different um, because they also believe in a cosmology uh, that is that, – that um, there are two opposing physical forces, God and Satan. Um, and, though, you know, no one knows who's going to win the battle, good or evil, um, but – but Augustine's very clear that this is this is material, not spiritual. Yeah, yeah, a dualist view of the world, kind of like uh, uh, the old Persian religion, Zoroastrianism, uh, very influenced by that. You have these co-equal and co-evil powers, good and evil. Chad, could you expound a little bit on that when they went? Because I actually didn't realize that um, that they thought of material as good. Did they believe in a spiritual side of things? I mean, I'm actually not clear on that. Uh, I, I, so what he, so the way that Augustine presents it is he learned the spiritual side of things from being a Platonist and the material side of things, um, from the, uh, um, from the Manichees. It has to do with creation. Um, and that's like, so he writes, um, Augustine is fascinated with Genesis in his life. He writes uh, four different books ultimately that concern quite a bit of Genesis, um, but it has to do with the fact that God created matter, um, and 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 uh, like and so um, and God is in some sense connected with matter, um, and so is Satan. And Satan is another opposing force that also has his matter, and both of them have matter that plays out in history. And one of them is over going to kind of going to overcome the other. Um, I only point that out because it's it's not clear to me exactly how that's supposed to work. Um, but throughout the book, Augustine will insist, um, that what he learns from the Platonist is spiritual. Um, and he can, he associates the Manichees with the material and with the created world. Uh, do we have good sources on the Manichees aside from Augustine? 
yes. So we found some manu- some manuscripts. Actually, there um, there are some some. I think they're. I want to say they're Coptic, um, but we did find some. Augustine is one of the main sources. Um, what we know comes a lot from Augustine, but yeah, we there are some other writings um, that do exist on Manichaeism, um, and it also appears to have existed into the what we call the Middle Ages in Asia. Um, it had an oddly long life uh, in terms of what we like. I think there was some some of the documents that were found in Central Asia have helped us like understand different parts of Manichaeism. Um, but I, I, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't know that I know enough to explain exactly how to make more of that. I mm. just want to po- point out um, <clears throat> that he calls it um, material. Interesting. I, uh, yeah, I guess I just didn't pick up on that clearly. Plus I'd always heard Manichaeism described as kind of a Gnostic sect. So I it guess is- it's more like, I guess it's more like an anti-Gnostic sect almost. Yeah. I mean, I just, um, yeah, he, he does. Uh, so, um, yeah. Um, okay. Well, before, well, so before he actually even goes to the Manichees, I did want to, I want to read his, um, so uh, let's see. Uh, yeah. He, he talks a little bit about uh, Cicero. Um, so when he's mastering the works of rhetoric, he comes across um, Cicero's Hortensius. And one of his uh, one of his work. This is reading um, book three, four or book three, uh, chapter seven, uh, part seven. One of his works contains a call to philosophy. It is called the Hortensius. That same work affected a change in my feelings and also changed my prayers to you, Lord. It altered the substance of my supplications and desires. All of a sudden, every one of my vain hopes became worthless to me, and with an extraordinary passion of the heart, I began to long for immortal wisdom. I started to arise so as to return to you, Um, not to sharpen my style of delivery, which was what my mother's payments were for. Now that I had reached the age of 19 and my father had died two years back, no, not to sharpen my style was I applying myself to this work. And it was not the style, um, uh, it was not the style of speaking, but the content of what was said that I found persuasive. Um... Yeah. Um, so I'll stop there. There's a lot of stuff in here. One, um, Augustine and Augustine makes this uh, criticism in several different places, but he says in the school of rhetoric, people would read Cicero, but they didn't read him because he was a good philosopher or because they wanted to know the truth. They just wanted to sound good. Uh, (laughs) Um, and so he says, so, uh, yeah, maybe I won't get into the, the, this other bit that I was going to say just yet. But he, he says it's the it's language that they admired and it's how he spoke. But he was concerned with what the content was. Non ad aquendum linguam referebam ilum librum neque mihi locutio said quod loque batur persuaserat. So that which what was actually discussed was way more important than how it was said. Um, which I find fascinating because... This is ultimately what he thinks is – my case is going to be this is what's the difference between a preacher and a rhetor. Mm-hmm. Um, so a preacher tells you the truth. Um, that is the teacher – and so doctrina, doctrine, doctus. Um, is, so he writes a book on Christian teaching. Augustine never writes a book on grammar, grammar or rhetoric um, the way that his teachers did. Um, it seems that most of the influential um, rhetoricians – uh, Quintilian, Cicero, Demosthenes, uh, uh, um, all these other guys, um, they wrote 
rhetorics and grammars to help people be better grammars and rhetoricians, grammarians and rhetoricians. Augustine writes a manual for teaching Christianity um, because he says it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't matter what you say. Um, Cause in fact, he actually thinks it really matters in the sense that people have to understand you. Uh, mm-hmm. And if people don't understand you, then you can't give them the truth. Um, and so uh, Cicero keep laud Cicero because Cicero does care about what is true. Um, and now, you know, he's not a Christian, um, but, um, but yeah, so that's, you know, this is one of the things that's, that's fascinating to me about Augustine and this is part of his change. And here, this is actually the point when his dad wants him to become a lawyer and go be a civil magistrate. Um, and Augustine rejects what his dad wanted for him. Um, and his, and his dad dies. Uh, and, and his dad at this point, his dad um, was born not a Christian, uh, but becomes one at some point in his life. Um, but his dad just wanted him to have a good job and make some money. And I love the fact that in Augustine's life, his mother hangs on just enough. Um, and, uh, and, and they both have this moment together where they're talking, where they um, experience God together. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that. It's called the Ostia Ascent. Um, but it's, he, he sort of, uh, it's almost, well, nothing is ever, uh, to me with Augustine, nothing is ever by accident. Um, and his dad who wanted, who's most, who's the thing that his dad wanted for him more than anything was for him to make money and for him to be a lawyer. The thing that his mother wanted for him more than anything was to become a Christian. Um, yeah. and his dad does not get to see his son's, uh, the end of his son's education, but his mother does get to see the son, end of his son's true education. Yeah, he actually says something really beautiful about that, um, about his mother's prayers being answered. Do you know what I'm talking about there? Um, uh, yeah, well, uh, th- I mean, it happens in any number of places, yeah. Uh, um, but, I, I mean, I, I when I think about his, I mean, I guess in terms of the narrative, I tend to think of the later return, but I, I don't know this part that you're referring. Hmm. I guess it doesn't matter that much right now. It was, yeah, it doesn't matter, I guess, that much right now. He does talk about it, though. He talks about his mother's prayers being answered, and and I guess that does actually kind of play into something I really wanted to bring up, which was, it's not really a new subject. It's dealing with that same thing. He's talking about reading Cicero and about his <clears throat> quest for and desire for truth, right, that Cicero inspires him to that, like you just said. But what I love about it is he recognizes in this kind of that first step towards Christianity, like towards the truth that that having read Cicero, he uh, comes to see the importance in true wisdom. And so he becomes a seeker or a searcher after the truth. What I love about that is, of course, It seems to me that nowadays Christians tend to, um, how to put it, they get scared when they hear about, I don't know, a son, a daughter, a friend, or whatever, going down a route that they think of as bad. Um, That is maybe going into atheism, going into a kind of a cultic view of some sort. Let me give you an example. I have a friend who went to prison a while back and his mom wrote me and she said, Hey, I need you to write or called me and said, Hey, I need you to write 
this friend of or the, my son because he's studying with Jehovah's Witnesses, and I need you to convince him not to become a Jehovah's Witness, um, which I have no problem doing in the sense that I have no problem giving arguments for why Trinitarian doctrine is true and why Jehovah's Witnessism is not a good or accurate reflection of what the Bible teaches or of the historic Christian faith or whatever. I don't have a problem doing those things. Uh, but he's actually out now. And as I was talking to him, it was important for me to communicate to him that I want to keep having conversations and I want to debate these things, but also to not communicate this incredible fear. Um, like that is, I don't need to panic and start saying to him over and over again, Jehovah's Witnessism is evil or something like that. Because here's the thing. What he told me was when he got into prison, he just started reading the Bible all the time. And he started talking to people all the time. And one of those people happened to be a Jehovah's Witness. And so what I can do is I can look at this and I can say, okay, I don't know where this story is going to end. But this all grew out of a desire to understand the word, to understand the Bible. And it came out of him reading and of him discussing. And that's a good place for him to be. Um, and I look at this as maybe, hopefully, prayerfully, the beginning of a journey that he's going to go down. That, that, that hopefully this, as he continues to read and as he continues to interact with people like myself and maybe other people, that he will start to see, you know, certain errors and that he'll change. And, you know, in other words, I see this as potential. I see uh -huh. this as something that could have a great future, but other like his mom, she sees it as as a catastrophe, right? Yeah. I, I don't know what's true. At the end of the day, only the Lord knows. What I do know is if I just come to him guns a-blazing and start saying, hey, and I, don't get me wrong, I'm not lying to him. I'm not telling him that I think Jehovah's Witnessism is okay or anything like that. But if I come in just like really pressuring him to change, really pressuring him to, you know, or using, I don't know, like talking about them in a, Talk about Jehovah's Witnessism in a negative light, like that is disparaging it. He's just going to leave, right? He's just going to, uh, he, he's not going to listen to me anymore. He's not going to talk to me anymore. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of what I'm thinking as I read about Augustine here, because Augustine's reading Cicero. His mom would have looked at Cicero and thought, oh, she like thrown up her hands. I don't want him to become a Ciceronian. I don't want him to embrace Roman philosophy, I want him to embrace Christian philosophy. But what Augustine is saying here is, is that it begins with Cicero, uh -huh. that it starts here, that this is the beginning of a path. And I think that that's a really good way to look at people engaging in the world around them. I don't think we need to be constantly afraid that, oh no, so-and-so is abandoning the faith or he's, I mean, it could be the beginning. Right. of his path to a stronger faith, right? I think only God knows those things, and we need to trust him with it. Yeah, um, that's beautifully said. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, maybe, you know, God, I mean, we could talk about internal motivations for why Augustine wrote what he wrote. Um, and maybe he's sort of justifying to himself or in a, some backward sense, even to his mother, like you didn't know what I had to go through, but I had to go through all these things, but I still relied on your prayers. He talks, you know, I mean, in book nine, for sure. And book uh, when he's talking to his mother and even in book eight, uh, later on, he'll talk about the influence of his mother praying for him. Um, and his, 
um, you know, how she desired so ardently um, and, and, and just, you know, uh, flooded her bed with tears, you know, over um, her son. And so, you know, I think, um, yeah, I think he needed to go through what he needed to go through and it's part of what made him um, who he was, you know, uh, I just, yeah, it's, it's, this is one of my favorite and one of the most difficult conversations that, that I have about Christianity in general is what does it take for me to be a Christian versus what does it take for someone else to be a Christian are not necessarily the same thing. Um, and so, you know, I like to think about Augustine here. His mother was probably illiterate. Um, his mother uh, had no education, had no uh, job, had no, you know, she, um, but what she did was she went to church. And she prayed and she loved her son how how best she could. And to him, you know, even when he gets to starting to write as a Christian, um, he talks about her as 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 having great wisdom in the platonic. Well, maybe I'm maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because we'll get to the ascent. But in the platonic um, and the neoplatonic understanding of communion with God, um, it was only someone with 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 the highest and most superior intelligence who could reach um, this mystical union. Um, and, uh, but Augustine reaches it with his mother who had no education, who had no understanding, who had no like deep grasp of philosophical truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I like to think of Augustine as, and well, one of the things that I wanted to read was what he talks about with the scriptures, um, is he talks about how simple they were. Um, and you know, he Actually- talks about, yeah. Hey, can I cut you off before you read that? Just because yeah. I don't want to get off this subject before I read something related to Cicero. Because okay. I, I think yours would be a good next transition. Um, carrying on, right after he talks about the Hortensius, the, the, the thing you read a second ago, mm-hmm. in section eight, he says, um, My God, how I burned, how I burned with longing to leave earthly things and fly back to you. I did not know what you were doing with me, for with you is wisdom. Love of wisdom is the meaning of the Greek word philosophia. This book kindled my love for it. Speaking again of Cicero's Hortensius, there's some people who use philosophy to lead people astray. And he goes on to kind of expound on that. But he says, nevertheless, the one thing that delighted me in Cicero's exhortation was the advice not to study one particular sect, but to love and seek and pursue and hold fast and strongly embrace wisdom itself wherever found, which, of course, Cicero was kind, was kind of like a, an encyclopedist in a sense, right? He cataloged philosophies. He didn't come up with his own philosophy per se. He tried to go through them and find what seemed best. And so what I love about this is kind of getting back to, you know, just really quickly before we transition to what you're about to say, getting back to this thing that we're talking about, about this, about Augustine's journey towards Christianity, whatever was needed for him. Right. I love the way you said that, like what it takes for him to become a Christian, which is so different for all of us. Right. Paul needed to have a vision from heaven. (laughs) You know, um, uh, some of us are raised in it. Some of us, I mean, you know, who's who's to say? I mean, I think about Acts chapter 17 when Paul is preaching to the men at Athens and he says that God has preordained the boundaries of our dwellings, right? Uh, So that we might reach for him and grope for him even though he is not far from each one of us. Meaning he's put us where we are 
in the places that we are, with the people that we are, with the circumstances we are, so that we will seek after him. Yeah. In the hopes that we might find him, right? So with Augustine, what did this mean? It meant reading Cicero and coming to this belief that he needed to know the truth, that he needed wisdom. And how did he do it? He was going to read everything. He was going to read and experience everything in the hopes that he could take the truth from bits, you know, and like, kind of like, you know, just whatever, like, I don't need to be a committed ideological Aristotelian. I don't need to be a committed ideological Platonist. I just need to take what is true from all of these things and to try to discern that. And of course, one of the first places he turns, and this could be a good transition to what you're about to say, is the Bible. He says, so I pulled out the Bible that my mom taught me. Yeah. I started reading it, right? Well, well, just to your point, I mean, Cicero, um, you know, it's hard to always pin him down philosophically, um, but he was a, probably an academic skeptic, uh, or sometimes it's also called a, um, uh, oh, oh shoot, uh, an eclectic, um, because he would take truth wherever it was found. Um, so it's probably not surprising that he learned that from Cicero. Uh, <laughs> but, well, one of the things that I love about the scriptures and Augustine uh, reading them is he said, Uh, So this is uh, book nine. So I decided to fix my mind on the Holy Scriptures to see what kind of thing they really were. What do I find? Something not disclosed to the proud, nor made play to children, but requiring humility in the approach, yet becoming sublime and cloaked in mystery as one goes deeper. I was not fit to enter it or to bend my neck to make uh, make that ascent. Um, I scrutinized the Holy Scripture, and I did not feel the way I do now when I speak of it. Instead, it seemed to me unworthy of comparison with the merit of Cicero's writings. Um, And he goes down a little bit further. It was something which could keep pace in its growth with little children. But I would not deign to become a little child. I saw myself as full of importance. I was bloated with disdain. Um, uh, I have... I, 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 this is, you know, um, Augustine is famous for saying the root of all sin is pride. Um, that may be, it's also a quote from Sirach, a deuterocanonical book, but, um, you know, this is my abiding sin preoccupation thorn in my flesh. I love Cicero. I love Augustine. I love thinking, I love reading, but, um, you know, if there's one thing that, uh, I hope characterizes any of my, any of the things that I study and do and write and say, um, it is always trying to remember that not everyone has to do it like me. (laughs) Um, this, this is what I have to do to make sense of my relationship to God. And I think it's good and I want it to be available and I want to keep thinking this way. Um, but I'll always remember like, you know, uh, that for my parents and for my family, my dad's mom, um, she was probably middle school educated if, uh, you know, never finished high school, uh, from rural Arkansas. Um, and she loved the old rugged cross and she loved her hymns and she loved going to church. And my, my whole family always remembers Mama as the most faithful, loving, prayerful person in our family. Um, she was the paragon of what it meant to be a, a lover of God. Um, and so whatever I have to do, uh, to love God in my, you know, as, and for love God for who he is, it's not the same as what Mama had to do, but I have to recognize that Mama loved the scriptures. Um, Mama knew Jesus in a way that I probably never will. Um, and, but that doesn't mean I can look down on her. Um, and I would hope, you know, Mama's died many years. Um, I would hope that she wouldn't look down on me for the fact that I had to go this way too. Um, yeah. But that's sort of what it means to be in a church. 
um, is that there are all different people who come from all different ways. Um, now we, you know, I mean, I'm still a theologian. I still believe that we should confess God, uh, God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. Um, I don't want, you know, I don't want anyone detracting from what the church has delivered as the truth, um, you know, through the Holy spirit and, um, and, and through scripture, um, nevertheless, uh, you know, I know that, 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 uh, Mama is faithful, um, and was faithful, um, still is right. You know, I believe that she still is. Um, and I guess she's not faithful anymore, right? but the greatest of these is love, which will remain. So she's not faithful anymore. She's just loving who she has always loved. Yeah. Um, and you know, but I can remember that and I can always, I can always try to think through, I don't have to assert that everyone has to do things exactly like me. Yeah. Thank you for listening to A History of Christian Theology. I'm Chad Kim. If you wouldn't uh, mind uh, rating and liking us on uh, liking us on Facebook and rating us on iTunes um, and checking out our Patreon account, we would really appreciate it. Thanks again. Have a good day.